0: This, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and you're listening to episode 109 with Tito Faradans, the creator of Anamorphic on a budget. Enjoy.
1: You watching anything cool recently? Uh I started watching Black Mirror and it was it was kind of weird. Because I watched the the current season? Yeah. I watched the first two episodes and I was like, this shit's good. And then I went and just saw people talking trash about it. I'm like, am I going crazy? Am I stupid? Is everyone stupid? I haven't finished the conclusion. Uh <laughs> yeah, me and my girlfriend just marathon the whole
0: season cuz they only do like what four There's six like episodes. Five. Yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, some of those some of those episodes are brutal. They can yeah. be movies, they're an hour and a half long. Just make it a movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just, just do that instead. Um, yeah. I really like the first one and then we're on episode three. So we watched the, the one with the astronauts and I was like, eh, that was a pretty lame episode. Like I get the references, but I don't get the vibe. I, I think it was a good, the astronaut one is a good, uh,
0: like great stakes, you know, great moral quandary, but the yeah. ending, the ending I was definitely like, I knew that was coming, but then yeah. why? Yeah.
1: Why? <laughs> yeah, like you can see it from like minute two. You're like, oh, they switch bodies? Cool, this is what's going to happen. And then yeah. it happens and you're like, yeah, okay. Where's the surprise? I, I, I will say, I, I,
0: well, I don't want to get into spoilers for people who haven't heard it, but like, I, uh, yeah, that's a that's a good one. What was the first one again? That was where the one is uh
1: joan is awful it's when the yeah the the woman's life is broadcast yeah i will say i i didn't see that that one coming where where
0: she was where they finally figure out they're one of the layers yeah it's like i uh yeah i don't know why it didn't occur to me but that one's really also netflix is getting way too meta yes very true well, yeah, a streamer true. called, like, Streamberry or something like that. Yeah, Streamberries, And it pops up in, like, two different episodes. We're watching a Streamberry thing. <laughs> uh, They're taking it too far. Yeah. Dude, you should watch, because uh, I know you're a pretty big, uh, like, sci-fi kind of dude. Um, Extrapolations is another really good. I interviewed a couple of the... Okay. De- I don't think... Well, those episodes will be out by the time yours is out. But Okay. Uh, they're not outright as we're talking, but, um, oh, I guess I could, well, anyway, uh, extrapolations it's on Apple and it's basically like the same kind of idea as Black Mirror where it's like an anthology, Uh but, um, so each episode are loosely linked, but they're, they're separated by sometimes like 20, 30 years. Um, Oh, and it's, and it's basically like if it's extrapolating out, like what will happen to the world via climate change and not like what's happening to the world specifically but what's happening to the people in that world that has now changed so it's like each episode's like 2030 20, 2060 20, 2099 20, you know oh wow yeah uh,
1: it's it's pretty good some good uh hard sci-fi there that seems very interesting i'm going to add it to the list when it shows up dude uh <laughs>
0: well the show is out now the interviews aren't but um the oh, okay yeah but it's on apple
1: apple tv is Not missing. Everything on Apple TV is good. Yeah. We binged on Severance and it was a slow burner. Like it started, we watched one episode, it's like, yeah, watched another, it's like, yeah. And then on episode three, we're like, oh, okay, got to finish this right now. Yeah. And it really pays off. Yeah. Severance is great. Silo is
0: great. Extrapolations is great. We just watched the uh, Michael J. Fox
1: documentary that's uh, right um, yeah i read silo i read all the books years ago and then i was like oh this looks familiar and i'm like oh yeah yeah what uh what were the kind of the first uh because I, I
0: watched your um like college films and they're they're all pretty much sci-fi dystopias which i think like yeah. it <laughs> what because we're about the same age i think i'm only like a year or two older than you and when i was in college it was the same thing we were all making like sci-fi dystopias or just the raunchiest possible comedies.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, in most in both of my classes, there was people doing like romance or like depression films. Right. And I was like, I get it, but also you're in you're in film school and if you gotta push the boundary, this is the time. Like make it as expensive as you can because as soon as you're out of here, this is gonna cost money. You're not gonna have this much access to gear and stuff and people right. and free labor.
0: That was the big one because so on this podcast, we've definitely talked a lot about like the the um, growing age between film and digital, you know, yep. and primarily we've always talked about the lens adapters, not the anamorphic ones, but just the those giant like lettuce or red oh, rock. Yeah, I use that. Yeah, and it's uh, and it would make your camera three times as long, you know, you'd lose four three stops of
1: light right here. Yeah, it's completely unwieldy. The best uh, part for me is that the image came upside down, like, right. And I was like, this is how you frame. And then you'd spend like an hour rewiring your mind to be like, when I want to pen left, I got a pen right. And if I want to go up, I got to look down. And it was just a mind boggling. Yeah. The, the
0: things we would do for simple, like when the kids complain about how like, oh, this camera's worse than this camera, I'm like, dude, you, be happy you're shooting on an SD card and you have
1: 24p. Yes. Like anything after the Canon T2i, you can probably say it's like, yeah, that's good Pretty enough. Good. You can yeah. make it.
0: <laughs> yeah. The, that was an interesting time to be in college. How how'd you go
1: from computer science to film and then basically back to science? <laughs> it was it was a good time. I, <laughs> I was very into video games when I was young. And then... I was like, you know, video games are in computers. If I go to computer science and get to like learn and make games. I think that's what I thought. It's been a while. I and have a then- similar thought. But- <laughs> and it was nothing like it. It was just calculus and uh, algebra, geometry. And I'm like, this is not what I signed up for. And at the same time, I started to help one of like my... Uh, teachers from high school was like, he was using video for classes and he was like, hey, can you help me out with this stuff? So I got into making video and then he'd started to pay and my friends all got into it. So we were like six, seven people, just all making videos on the weekend. And then I jumped into After Effects. Cause I was like, you know, I want to make like some muzzle flashes and yep. fire some guns and- yeah, uh lightsabers. Lightsaber, oh man, lightsabers take so much time. So (laughs) much time. Uh, So I got into that and then within a year, I was like, I'm going to drop out of computer science and I got to go to film school. And I talked to my parents. The good thing is uh, in Brazil, uh, university education, like the federal universities are free. It's just a pain to get in. So I was like, I'm dropping out of this course that I didn't pay anything for. And I want to go into this other one. And they're like, well, if you want to do film, you got to go to the best school. You're like, OK, so the the acceptance rate is one person gets accepted for every 35 that apply. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a pretty hardcore uh, exam. So I like studied a bunch and then used filmmaking and photography. That's when I really got into cameras. Uh, that was my hobby during breaks of studying for the test. So I learned like Aperture, ISO, I had a Canon XTI, which, yep, classic. (laughs) Uh, And then I got into film and there was a four-year program. I hated all the history classes. And as soon as I graduated, I was like, oh man, film history was the best thing I could ever learn. Bring me me back that, bring me the time. Uh, And at the end of it, a lot of like, Because it was such a small class, the class was 35 people. A lot of them would be like pairings of writer, directors, and uh, DPs. But people would take too long to develop their projects. And I was already like, I want to get out. I want to go into the real world and deal with real problems. So I kind of like streamlined my project to fit within four or five different courses that I was taking at the time. So I could use the same project to pass all of those courses, which was a, a smart move, but also lots of stress. And that's when I got into anamorphics because uh, during that time, it was the digital revolution and it was Canon 5D. The 7D had just come out and half the students in the program had a 7D. And damn. Yeah. it It was a lot of cameras. Everybody had one. And... They would have the same lenses. It was like the kit lens, uh, eighteen to fifty-five, one seventy to two hundred two eight. That costed like a car. That fifty-one four. That is like the buzziest lens of all times. And there was like a twenty-four seventy classic too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so everybody had the same lenses, and they were using the same set because we had. Uh, The film department had one studio where you could build sets, but as a student, usually you're building a set. It looks like a set. No one has like the experience to build and age a set. So everything looks like a set. And I was like, all these movies are looking the same, including the stuff I made in the last few semesters. What, where can I go weird? And that pushed me into anamorphic adapters and vintage Soviet lenses. So it was kind of a mix where I bought a bunch of random parts. I was like, my budget is $1,500. I'm gonna buy three adapters, six different lenses. Everything is gonna be like below $200 and it's gonna be a pile of gear to go on. And I started experimenting and like doing other shorts with friends, also from school, uh, before I got to the final project. And during that time is when I like went through different combinations of adapters and figured out what is good or yeah, there was there was three classifications. What is bad, like objectively bad, what is good, like it works and what I like. So I could like things in the two categories, but I try to be like, what is what is feasible if I have good and I have stuff that I like, how can I join these two things and push it into a project uh, to make it like visually uh, stand out from the other films that we're making and do all of this with like small crew not like everything that we were doing as students in the film department I was like I want to go backwards on it just like take the ideas of composition and how to make a film but Don't use a set, just do locations for everything. Figure out lighting, uh, natural lighting for everything and test these adapters. And just like test on a real project because if things go wrong, that's how you're gonna learn. You can can test at home as much as you want to be like, this is perfect, go on set, breaks on minute one. Um, So that's where I went with my graduation project, which is, this alternate reality where at the time like the bus fare had gone up and this caused riots everywhere. <laughs> the whole city was burning and i was like you know if this kept escalating and the solution was to seal in the city that's going to be the pitch that's let's roll with this so we're 20 years in the future and we're following this one character who's been trapped here and we don't know much about him and i just needed to like set up some hooks and create a visually compelling narrative not necessarily like oh my god there's so many twists and turns the story is so amazing it's like right it has to be a mood and um i gotta have the chance to test all these lenses and deal with them failing and succeeding and so i did that and that's where I learned it's not a great idea to be writer, director, photographer, director of <laughs> photography, editor, and visual effects artist all in one project. Yeah. Like, i um, ass. Yeah. And I was, I was acting in it as like a background character. I'm like, this is not the smartest idea, but we're halfway through it, so let's finish. Um, And it worked. Like, I learned a lot. I wrote my graduation paper, which was 100 pages of preparation for the film, all the things that I did in terms of like creating the visual concepts, why anamorphics would play into this, why I wanted to go into anamorphics to make it look different, the process of researching lenses and adapters, the cameras used, which was like a Canon 50D, which uh, because of Magic Lantern, it was filming it raw. It was a wild camera that was already dead by the time. I was making the film, <laughs> and and a 5D, a 5D Mark III, I think, uh, which is full frame and also with magic lantern. Because, uh, and you you big, sell all that research now as a PDF, right? Yeah. So
0: if you are mm, so the talk plot, about using projects, line, yeah. yeah, I I actually was going to say that
1: I tried going on your in website, yeah, a little offline. <laughs> It sucks because it's been a friend for a month and I've been chasing the person who's responsible for keeping it up and I can't get it back. So uh, it's going to be a minute. But the whole research in Portuguese is out there for free. And the first draft, like, the first draft happened because one time in 2015, I I went to see my family for Christmas and I had to go back to Vancouver for school. And I was flying overnight on December 31st. So it was new year on the plane and I'm like, I'm here by myself. There's nothing to do. I might as well just start translating all of (laughs) these hundred pages into English as both an exercise and contribution to the community. Right. Because a lot of it was not there. Like A lot of my graduation paper did not exist in English. I gathered from hundreds of different sources and personal experience and no one had put that all organized and clean up in it one place, like USHD was the heart for anamorphic filmmaking. Uh Andrew Reed would post things and test and hack his GH4 or something. Uh, so there was no no central idea. And then I'm like, I'm going to put this all in my blog and just like translate a chapter, put it up, translate another, put it up. And for the longest time, it was there. It was it, now the blog's offline, but I'm still bringing it back. Bruh. And it is still pretty reliable. Like all of it still applies when it comes to adapters. And in 2020, I revised the whole thing. Like I had six years of speaking English. So the, the quality of the translation improved significantly. Uh, and I also got rid of stuff that was like, this is clearly dead. All the magic lantern stuff is like way downscaled and focused more on the adapters and updated information on adapters. So yeah, that is one of the things that I sell. It's a anamorphic kind on of a budget guide. Uh, uh, and it's, I, I like it, I'm still proud of it, which is a fun thing to say. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and t- you were saying that you were, uh, you know, using one project to graduate multiple classes. Yeah. I mean, t- I don't think I can name a single person who can uh, <laughs> sell their research project to people. <laughs>
1: It's true. I really went all out on this thing. Like. I thought about stopping the channel of context on the channel, I guess. Um, Right after I finished yeah, the YouTube channel, right after I finished translating, I still had a bunch of adapters at home and nothing else to do. So I was like in between uh, school and I was like, you know, I'm going to start making videos talking about these adapters like lens reviews but I'm going to put as little effort as possible and I am going to keep it as objective as possible. And like, looking back, I can see those were two, two shots on my feet. I was just like, you know what? Bam. Yeah. Uh, but it's a journey. So I started and it was very slow for several years. Um, I always thought it was like, you know, this, is, this has gotta be my business, I gotta monetize this, I gotta make money out of it. And every time I try to monetize it, it would break. Like I would break, I would burn out, or I'd look at the numbers and be like, I'm putting more and more hours and the returns are exactly the same. Yeah. Um, so financially speaking, it was bust the entire time. Um, but in terms of community, it gathered a really strong community of people. Like uh some folks would send in their adapters from all parts of the world, like oh wow, fifteen hundred, two thousand dollar lenses. They would put in the mail and be like, Yeah, you can make a video about this. You can send it back when you're done. And I'm like, wow. The level of trust. Yeah. Um, so those are pretty fun. Um and then everything changed in 2019 when Surrey finally launched their like 15 millimeters anamorphic lens Mm. which was the first lens uh, that was really really on a budget like you could buy it with less than a thousand dollars and from there we've seen like the expansion of anamorphic lenses and adapters from so many different brands so now the channel is like growing exponentially and i'm just trying to navigate there's too much to talk about well that's yeah. got to be exciting instead of
0: uh hitting a dead spot and just being like well there's only so much you can talk about oval bokeh 3d printed uh inserts you know yes it's very true it is actually, very true i actually have here yeah, sure um when i started my production company in 2015 i was like all right i'll just get the sigma 18 to 35 but if i wanted to class it up you got the old lettuce oh, oh man it's the old one. It's not the lettuce pro, but it's uh it's still. I'll still use it sometimes. Nice.
1: It's so heavy.
0: It's so heavy. It's unnecessarily heavy.
1: Yes. And it. Was. I. I talked to lettuce. Like, I had a guy on the channel that was like obsessed about it. And he was like, "I will put you in touch with them," and I was like, "Cool, thanks." Uh, and he did. And I talked to the people at lettuce, and they're like, "Yeah, we're gonna send you these guys." And then you can make your video and love some feedback and how we can make it better. And then they sent me the pro versions, the 1.3.3 and the 1.8. And uh, the the 1.8 didn't work straight out of the box. It was like there was something not working about it. So I never made the video about that. And the 1.3.3 was kind of good, but a big hassle. Like it's an adapter and it's a massive one. So. There's a lot of the quirks from adapters of like you have to focus your taking lens and the adapter at the same time um, just to rig it up. Like the thing is so massive that you're like, okay, I got to get some lens support. I got to bolt this to the rails.
0: The the pro's even smaller. This thing is fucking like
1: unwieldy. Yeah, the pro's smaller. But yeah, I told them like lots of things like you can make this smaller. You can make this lighter. There's no distance markings on this. There's like. Yeah, it just says one, two, three. It's like. Yeah. It's like numbers and like, give me something that I can put like on a real set because yeah. this cannot. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it didn't go anywhere. I don't, I don't even know if they still make it. Every once in a while I'll check in because Lettuce, like we
0: were saying earlier, it was one of the original companies that made like the lens that, you know, the, the DX yeah. lens adapters. Yeah. And they, they just have a history of apparently making stuff stopping it and then starting a completely new idea like i think they make fucking
1: tubes now like i don't even know (laughs) yeah i'm on their website they have this weird gimbal thing called helix sure oh i remember the helix that seems to be it oh no there's anamorphic adapters feel okay let's see they still make it it's what four thousand dollars oh no 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 no! i'm not that. No, no, no. Did I pay that? There's
0: no way I paid that for this thing. I think this. I I do think this thing was like one and a half, though. It was up there. Maybe it was one. No, you know what? I think I got the like nine hundred ninety-nine dollar version that came with this stupid uh mat box box. that doesn't hold a mat. Or if it does, I was never given one.
1: Certainly doesn't have filters. Yeah. No, this mat box is. I don't understand it's like i'm doing it for flares and then you put a giant heavy met box around it what is the yeah. point where are you going for with it and I, I i remember
0: trying to take it off and it doesn't like dis. you can see i'm missing a screw it doesn't like disconnect from the thing properly <laughs> i mean it's fun but yeah. yeah this is as close as i got to- i have looked into those um uh the the modded helios But um, yeah, like you were saying, now these companies are coming out with affordable, smaller, single unit
1: uh, lenses. But there is an advantage to the modded uh, Helios 44. Like there is an advantage to modifying lenses, which is you don't have to change your whole workflow. Uh, You like a lens, you're just like, I'm gonna make this a little more interesting. And then you modify it. Uh, The Helios adaptation is like, I can do it with my eyes closed, I think uh in in five minutes i've done at least a hundred of those at this point and now i have a couple of panasonic uh autofocus lenses oh. disassembled that i am throwing oval inserts inside because with the s52 and s52x that they have decent autofocus i'm like you know what let's spice up this game and like Get autofocus with oval bouquet because no one's doing that yet.
0: <laughs> that is the nice, I will say that is the nice thing about this adapter. I did a test the other day. I think I had, uh, oh, you know what I had? I had the 40 millimeter pancake on my C500 because it's a full frame lens, but it's this big. And I That's stuck that on lens. there. It's uh, a great lens. Yeah, uh, And so I put that on the C500 and then just put the adapter right up against <sighs> it. So you're holding the C500, and it just looks like this giant matte box on the front, and you have an autofocus anamorphic.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'll I'll send you a photo of that, because it's a silly-looking setup. Oh, I would love that. I would love to see that setup, because, yeah, that 40mm is so tiny. I still love that lens. Yeah. It's, It's a great match for anamorphic adapters, to be honest. Yeah, as long as you don't have to screw anything to it. Yeah, or just, like, lens support the hell out of it.
0: Yeah, in in the BTS footage of your uh, film from 2013, it looked like you just had at least like two feet of of adapter on the front. What was that whole rig?
1: Yeah, so I think the, that rig uh, is a Soviet lens. So it's a Lomo lens, a proper cinema, anamorphic. It's a front, anamorphic zoom, and it's a 37 to 140 millimeters T4.5 but it's massive, it's like this big. Yeah. And I bought one for cheap. That Buying that lens was an adventure because I bought it from someone in like Prague and I, my sister was in Spain, so I shipped it to my sister and she almost didn't get it before she had to go back to Brazil, but she, she got it back. Uh, and then I had to figure out how to mount this because uh, I didn't have EF adapter, EF to PL. I was still like, PL lenses are so fancy. Canon cameras can't do this, right? So I had to find someone that had an EF adapter for that lens, and then change the mount myself, and learn how to operate it. The whole thing, the I can't remember how much it weighed, but it was at least seven or eight pounds of just yeah. lens. <laughs> And the cool thing about it is you can zoom and it's par focal. So you could just like crank the zoom on a super, on a two times anamorphic lens um, and still have your image in focus. The downside is that T4.5, it's still soft. So right. I like, it. ah, vintage optics, don't we love them? Um, and I don't think I ended up using a single zoom shot in my pilot episode. I was just like, this is cool. I got a real cinema anamorphic lens. I am very fancy right now. This is the fanciest I'll ever be. Uh, But I ended up selling it when I moved because it was too much of a hassle to use it.
0: Well, it is interesting how, you know, during that digital revolution, we were forced to use bad lenses because the nice ones were cinema lenses, you know? yeah. Although looking back on it, I had a Nikon D90 and I had I still have all my Nikkor lenses from you know the the AIS lenses nice. that I got from my uncle. I still use them all the time. Like that's actually the secret weapon if you just want like it's not quite K thirty five fudgy, but it's also not super clinical. It's this nice little middle ground between vintage and modern. Yeah, but oh, you know the Nikon's all F mount, so I could have used those lenses on my D ninety and shot video, but the the point I'm getting at was even the D90 had just, it was so soft. You had 720, and it was just really, even if you had the sharpest lens in the world. So we were getting sharper and sharper and sharper lenses, and then cameras just subtly
1: got so good, and now we're like, no, 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 and now we're getting worse and worse and worse (laughs) lenses. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much it. It's like they're dialing down, or like we get lenses where the purpose, like the concept of anamorphic is, aberration, imperfection, softness, is you have to stop it down to get some some depth of field, some like, I can tell that this is in focus now vibe, right? but the anamorphics that we're getting now um, from most of the Chinese companies are like super sharp, right at the gate. Optically perfect. Yeah. Across the whole frame and then cool, but then I have to degrade it in post. I have to like make this look bad somehow. Um, So that's been the struggle. And that's where I really appreciate like the folks at Atlas because they do a lot of research. I interviewed Dan for this podcast. Oh, nice. Yeah, Dan is great. We had so many good conversations. Um, And they go and and talk to the people who are using the lenses or who want to use the lenses and, and ask, what do you want to see? What kind of flares? What kind of distortion? What kind of... Uh, Bokeh you're looking for form factor, like the Mercury's are a pretty smart move as full frame lenses that are so tiny and anamorphic. Like it's hard to find full frame lenses, cinema style full frame lenses that are that tiny, even less anamorphic. Right now I've um, got these. Nice. How do you like so, it? the Lower Rangers? Uh, I'm I'm enjoying them.
0: They're kind of long, but they're pretty light. Um, but like you said, like optically perfect par focal, don't really breathe. but, um, yeah, not n- optically, not very interesting, but you know, the, the fall off is nice and stuff. But, um, to your point, they, it's like, this is the first full frame zoom that I've seen that's even remotely affordable. Otherwise it's like
1: cook. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And and that was the game before Atlas still. It was like, oh, you want anamorphics? Well, uh, you can talk to Cook, they're the cheapest, just 30 grand per lens Yeah. Well, or rentals. And in Brazil, I could not rent. It was impossible. Like renting anything for as simple as it was, uh, it would be thousands and thousands of bucks. So it was not an option. It was like, you either own the gear that you're gonna use or you, use what's available for free yeah it's the
0: yeah how did how did run you know running the uh ostensibly the main anamorphic community on youtube how did the the release of the original
1: orions kind of shake things up for y'all it, it was a very interesting time because Forrest was uh, an active member of all the anamorphic groups. And he was like testing weird stuff. We had a call before uh, he entered a business with, with Dan and like they, they became Atlas. It was just like Forrest doing his stuff. And it was really fascinating to see uh, all of that, like come from from the community and become something that will change the community. So uh really fascinating. Still, I was like, I don't have $10,000 to pay on a lens. Uh, I love that this is happening. Still can't afford it. Um, but like I kept in touch with them and then followed up. And, um, there's still to this day, like rumors of like, Oh, the Orion, they're not really designed. They're made up of things. You're like, calm down, man. That's what, that's that's what
0: Panavision does. I actually know for a fact that a certain Panavision lens is are cobbled
1: together from
0: existing cinema lenses.
1: Yep. I, I can't say a word about it. I, I made a yeah, video about it <laughs> recently. And I'm still waiting to hear from their lawyers. I hope I never do, but I'm still afraid. Oh that yeah. I mean as long as he is all you gotta do is say allegedly. We learned that from uh Desus and arrow. Just say allegedly. <laughs> Good to know. But yeah, because I was filming at Panavision and I was brought in by people from Panavision Vancouver. Oh, that's how you get in trouble. Yes. And it was it was like, it was a situation where like some people that were new to Panavision, but knew me, they're like, yeah, we're, we want to facilitate this. And then like got the ball rolling. I went there with a few friends and then I went there again to like film the actual video. And then as we're filming, I can see one of the guys just getting more and more uncomfortable. And I'm like, I got to do some damage control before I leave here. Otherwise, they'll be like, give me your SD cards and I'll smash right. them right now.
0: Was it just uh, that you were learning too much about their process, or what was why were they yeah. uh, getting like nervous?
1: They're extremely open when you're there. They're extremely open to talk about what it is, what things are, what they have, how they make it. Um, but then there's navigating that that you're going there as a as a like an individual, and the fact that I am making this to go on a YouTube channel that has forty thousand subscribers, uh, and and constantly talks about the competition, pretty much, because uh, everyone wants to beep out of vision. Road. That, um, when I think anamorphic, I think of the C-Series. Yeah, yeah. I think most people think of the C-Series. Uh, and so during that day of filming there, I had like three 20-minute videos planned for that oh, visit. Wow. And I was gonna show like the projector room, how to assess lenses on a projector, I was going to show, talk like extensively about the primos and everything that goes in them and break down all of the anamorphics and how they're assembled allegedly. Yeah. (laughs) And how all of those things go on. And as I was going and like noticing the shift in the mood, I was like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to cut this short. I'm going to do one video. It's going to be something and I'm going to like figure out what I'm going to lose. Everything that I'm like, Mm, this could be useful as like a trade secret. I'm going right. to cut it up, and, and had a conversation with their marketing person uh, from Panavision Vancouver. And I was like, okay, I'm going to like, I'm going to cut everything that I think would be bad for both of us. Cause we don't, neither of us like lawyers, so right. not get them involved. And I'll just make this to be like an interesting thing about Panavision because it's so closed off that there's not like people talking, having access to Petavision to talk about it in a non-sponsored way where it's like, oh yeah, we had Petavision lenses for this $100 million film. It's like, no, the name of the channel is Anamorphic on a Budget and I'm talking about Petavision. It's like, where's this gonna go? Uh,
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, I suppose you could say like, well, that's what they don't want. But I was going to say you could talk about how to get close to a C-series. I think, so this actually brings up an interesting question that I have. And that is, you know, obviously flares, bokeh, um, those can be modified. The the sort of shape of the lens, you know, the bulge can be mm-hmm. changed. Uh, you've mentioned um, Vashy's After Effects profile. Now, of course, yes fucking trash. There's just it's been so there's been construction trash. Um, <laughs> sorry, to people listening. But um, if I close my window, it'll get 90 degrees in here so fast. Oh my uh, god, I'm gonna die! Yeah, it's it's brutal. For some reason, it's very, great insulation in this house. But anyway, um, uh, flares, bokeh, the sort of mumps. I wish Bashy could make that could make that for Premiere, so I don't have to hop over to After Effects. I'm sure there's a way to do it. But, yeah, yeah. Um, I've done it in resolve there's like a resolve is so easy yeah um but the one thing that doesn't i at least don't know how to translate it is the kind of fall off the the anamorphic fall off which is an optical aberration not like a thing that can add and i was wondering if is that just one of those things that can't
1: be faked pretty much and the reason that happens is because you have effectively two different focal lengths that you're working with. You have your vertical focal length, which is like, let's say it's a 50 millimeter, two times anamorphic. So vertically, you have the field of view of 50 millimeters and horizontally, you have the field of view of a 25 millimeter. And that is going to, uh, optically, like the fall off will be of the vertical, of the longer lens it will be over 50 mil. But since you have all that width, uh, it seems that you have a wide shot with a very narrow depth of field. Like you have that special fall off. And right. it, it's the whole point of the process. Like you can't cheat. Uh, I'm just, oh yeah, for my wides, I'm gonna use a wide spherical lens, and then I'm just gonna crop the top and bottom. But that's going to stand out so much. Yeah. So, so much. Uh, and that's one of the things I haven't figured out how to, how to hack just yet. <laughs> Without a crazy
0: amount of masking and like, <laughs> and yes, it still looks quite right. I have done, and it still does not, does not do it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's crazy. What It feels, I suppose, nice, uh, Cause all of the wild shit we used to do to bump the production value up as students. And then now it's like, you can kind of pick any camera. You can get a vintage, a vintage nice. Sh- I like those, those Nikors you can pick up for a hundred, 200 bucks. Yeah. And, and as long as you have some good production design, lights are cheap, you know, and small. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't really know. What do you do to to kind of bump up production value now, besides obviously like anamorphic stuff what do you, what do you think when you're thinking production value in modern times?
1: Yeah, I think production value now comes down a lot more to the knowledge and the understanding and using the cinematic language than the gear itself like the the gear barrier has been conquered now it's like how you understand ways to tell a story visually. How do you make a shot memorable through blocking, through camera movement, through lighting changes? Uh, All of those things are what's going to push the boundaries. And it's it's cool because a lot of it you can learn by trial and error. Uh, Like I've been to film school three times and the one thing I take away from the three experiences is you're gonna mess up in the beginning. So just get it out of the way as fast as possible. Like, <laughs> yeah, try to make as much as you can as fast as possible. And you're done with one thing, you're like, I hate it, but I learned this. So you take the thing that worked and you work on all the things that failed and you're like, okay, next project, I have this tool, I can bring these other attempts. Like I wanna, I wanna have, make a film noir because that's a very student thing to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Briefcase full of cocaine, kick a hobo, single red rose, the whole thing, yep. Yes, and (laughs) you you go and you're like, what is the language? And studying a lot of that, or like studying by watching YouTube videos or by watching films and being like, oh, I really like how, uh, I don't know, uh, would Punch Drunk Love be classified as a noir? Uh,
0: No, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. bang, bang, I would call a neo-noir yeah
1: yeah yeah no yeah Love it's just the wrong name Not visually but right. yeah i was i was sitting i was sitting here going punch love <laughs> yeah i always mistake those two
0: titles uh kiss kiss but... bang bang is lo- is underrated that's
1: a great yes. film yes so entertaining um but you can take like story elements or pace elements from that and be like cool i'm gonna bring one of these ideas into my film and visually I'm gonna make it look like uh, No Country for Old Men. Gonna all take place in the desert, uh, and then figure out what it is that you have to do to make a desert look good. Like, oh yeah, I'm gonna use super long lenses and play into the temperature, like the heat ripples, distorting the image. Or I'm gonna try and do some visual effects and like get really wide shots where I'm extending the set. Uh, all of the tools are at our reach and it's, it's much more of a teamwork. Like your team is going to make or break your film and, uh, how you approach storytelling, like the stories that are being told the team and the, the technical side, like the creative technical. Yeah.
0: Well, about something that's been said a lot in the world and gets a lot of pushback that it's been said on this podcast, too, is like, oh, if you want to make your thing, grab your cell phone and go do it. And everyone always gets pissed off at that because they're like, but then it doesn't look serious. And I'm like, well, as just as you're saying, write a better script because like everyone wants. I mean, it was the same reason I think you and I both wanted to get an anamorphic or any lens back in the day. I was like, well, my I know my story sucks ass. I just want it to look good and then people will take me seriously
1: <laughs> yet. Yeah. And that's why I didn't want to be a director the whole time. Like I was very happy being a DP because my goal was I like to make pretty pictures. Right. I don't like if the story sucks, but it's visually good. I'm happy. That's why I have a YouTube channel. There's no pressure in telling a good story. Yeah. It's like, make it look good. This lens helps me. This lens does not. This is what you can do and like try to keep it objective. Uh, So, well, yeah. The,
0: there's also the, I mean, Moment doesn't really make cases anymore, but you, I still, I have the Moment uh mm-hmm. anamorphic adapter. So even if you want to shoot on your cell phone and shoot anamorphic,
1: you can do that. Yep. And I did that. I had the Moment case until my phone died recently. So I had to replace it. I was like, ah, okay, it's time to move on. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> I still like, I did this whole, like on my Instagram, I'll do like years of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess this is the year of not really posting that much, but <laughs> like two years ago, it was all black and white, uh-huh. which was really educational in terms of just seeing light. Like it made yeah. me a better DP, you know, way more than a lot of other things, just because suddenly I was like constantly looking for light yeah, and I exactly. would compose images in black and white, yeah. even if I was shooting color. Cause then you see contrast better and you're like, okay, that's, a, that's a more dynamic image versus like getting distracted with color. Yeah. Um, but then one year it was all mobile photography i wrote a few articles about it and i was using those moment tellies and right. they kind of have like the wide was just i mean it was cool but it was just wide and sharp but the telly had like this weird fudginess around the edges that was kind of vintage-esque that
1: I, I i was shooting on a pixel 3 and it's like it's a kind of a sick lens yeah yeah my phone was a pixel 2 and i used their anamorphic for like more than a year and it was fun. It's like, it's fun. Uh, like making movies with your phone is something that I am conceptually for. And in practice, I'm like, yeah, you should definitely do it. I'm not going to do it, but you should do it. Yeah. Uh, well, I think yeah. that advice is literally just
0: to like get people to, as you're saying, make yes. those mistakes to like just and just get, and get in the rhythm of failing. Yeah. In very low stakes, easy environments versus. Yeah. You know, I think we all did this in film school where you put so much. I mean, your your uh, project coming out of film school looked great. Mine looked like dog shit because I did it last second. Um, <laughs> uh, also great. Uh, speaking of that project, like uh, that was something that I learned at New York Film Academy that you did was like starting off with a bang, like real high production value start. And then yeah. it was like two people in a room. Yeah. but you see that high value uh, production value start
1: you're like okay good this is a good movie and then you're willing to listen you know yeah 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 i learned that on just like cutting reels for visual effects like you put your first your best shot first and then you go slower but your first shot has always to be like the most capturing thing you can think of
0: yeah yeah there's there's a few oh i did want to my brain is all over the place right now it usually is but I did want to ask about, because I haven't really interviewed anyone who has like a, a pretty successful YouTube channel, and I was wondering what, um, you know, A, is that is how do you keep that creatively satisfying? Obviously, uh, educa- I, I get really stoked on education, you know, and learning things, so I think that's probably for you one thing, but how do you keep that creatively satisfying and also... What are some of the challenges in working within an ecosystem like YouTube? Because obviously anyone can start a YouTube channel, but defeating the algorithm or whatever it is, like getting seen seems to be incredibly difficult.
1: Yeah, yeah, those are great questions. So, uh, on staying, uh, getting like creative fulfillment, uh, it's. The ongoing battle. Like at first, I was just happy that I was making videos and like getting that stuff out there because I was like, now I don't have to worry about this. People will find this information. It was just just education, and then I started to get feedback like your audio sucks and, I'm, <laughs> and very constructive. Thank you very much because um, that's the internet. I get, I get. You talk too much a lot. Oh wow, on YouTube, talk, talk too, much. too much, bro. You talk too much. Get to the point. And I'm like, go to someone else's fucking channel. Let- Yeah. Yeah. It's like, if you're here, you're, you're choosing this package. This is what you're getting. Like for me, it's like, I will go off on very technical things that I'm talking way too fast and showing graphics that are moving way too fast to follow. And then I'm like, well, I guess that's what I do. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. In my mind, like hit pause. Yeah. Uh, But then like for the first several years was like, getting the technical side correct, like getting better camera, better lighting, figuring out a way to make the videos consistent, uh, better sound, learning how to be a better editor and coming up with tests for the lenses. Uh, until I started to be like, you know, this should be a business. I should make money out of this. That, that was like every time I've had this mindset, it's been a mistake. If, yeah. if I'm doing the channel for fun, I can do it forever. If I'm doing it for the money, I'm burning out in no time. So in 2019, uh I've been like I spent six months without posting. I was like, I'm I just don't want to do this anymore. Every video is the same. It's my girlfriend walking in the park and like touching some leaves and <laughs> sun flares. And I'm like, enough of this. I'm tired. This is not going anywhere. It doesn't make any money. It takes too much time. I need to get a job. Yeah. So I didn't do anything, and then in uh, December, I was going to New York, and a guy, no, a guy from New York said, "Hey, I'm in, I'm in New York. I watch your channel, and I have an Atlas Orion. I have a 40 millimeters. Have you ever tried it?" And I was like, "No." He's like, "Well, if you ever come through, just uh, let me know, and you can have it for a little bit." And I was like, "Okay." So I was going to. Uh, spend Christmas with my girlfriend's family in Connecticut and coming in through New York. So I messaged him. and was like, Hey Nick, how's that Orion thing? Is it good? Like, are you for real? And so we met at Grand Central Station at 8am on like a random weekday. And he gave me a case with a $10,000 lens. Like he was giving a lens to a person he never met before, right. running on it like a station. So I'm like, cool. Thank you. Here's my number. Uh, I'll be back here on this day. And then we figure out how to return. And he's like, that's great. Excellent. Thank you so much. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Grand Central too,
0: where you could literally disappear.
1: Yes. <laughs> and I was like, that was a jolt of like the people who are watching this channel, like the, the, the material that I'm putting out, they do trust me as a person, like, but beyond the, oh, this is an internet personality. This is a real person that I trust. Mm. And to me, that meant a lot. Um, so I had the lens for two weeks and then I met him again uh on the way when I was heading back to Vancouver and gave him the lens and like thanked him profusely. Uh took several months to edit the videos and I'm like, you know what? This is gonna be my my goodbye. Like reviewing this lens is gonna be the goodbye to the channel, and I'm done. Uh and decided to go to NAB because I always wanted to go to NAB, but I never did. And I'm like, ah, might as well go. So I went, sitting at a talk by Adobe, the guys at Corridor Digital are just like doing their thing and talking. The talk is over. And then uh, Sam is like, I love your channel. And I'm like, nah, <laughs> nah. He's like, yeah, with the lens mods and the anamorphic stuff. and like, he actually does know what the right. channel is. And that's when I realized I had no idea of who's watching the the videos, who's learning from it, whose career is changing because of them, uh, for better or for worse, for like for right. being broke because you bought too many lenses, or for like being successful because you use this new tool and that like slingshot you forward. So at that point, I was like, I'm gonna go back to it. It's not gonna be a business and it's gonna be on my terms, which is if I'm not having fun, I'm taking a break. Right. Uh, and started to push for like more creative approaches. Like if I'm going to test a bunch of lenses, I want to do a short film. Get the people, get like some sort of a script, even if it's not the most brilliant thing, like a three minute thing, because it's not painful to watch. Uh, And I kept doing this. And then since then, I've taken a couple breaks, but now with the Mercury's No, before that, in 2020, I started to do the cookbook, which is a series of videos that are uh, like foundational. So you can watch those, they're not product reviews, they teach the basics like history of anamorphic lenses, um, how the things work internally, what do you have to think about when you're choosing a camera, if filming anamorphic is one of your purposes. And then there's two modules that are gonna go more into optics for sphericals and for anamorphics. And now I'm working on a module about rigging. So it's like, what is that you have to account for if you're rigging for anamorphic lenses? And a lot of it has to do with rigging in general. Like how do you put a camera that is reliable on the field and that has all the spots for all the tools that you're gonna need to one, make your life easy on set and two, make your crew's life easy on set. Um, And then talk about being on set and post-production. And all of those things, like I've tried to get sponsorships for them, it's a hassle. But yeah, Yeah. three years and a hundred episodes
0: of this, that yours will probably be like episode 111 or something like that and uh,
1: somewhere around there. But uh, yeah, no sponsors. (laughs) It's just, man, I'm giving here education for free. Uh, Atlas jumped on board for the first and the second module, which is great collaborating with them. Like I learned a lot. I had lots of technical questions that they were able to answer in a heartbeat. They sent me the lenses to play with. Uh, I got to keep a 40 mil, which is my favorite for line. Yeah, that's a good yeah. one. Yeah. Um, so like finding the sponsors is very hard, but it's the, the project that I'm putting forward as like, this is where I strive because it's, it's pure education. I don't have to cater to anyone's message of like, oh, you got to show how amazing our lens is. Right. It's like I'm gonna I'm gonna show your lens is amazing by simply using the
0: lens. Um, the note I always hate with because I write for Pro Video Coalition, so i I do a lot of reviews and stuff. And the one I always hate is like, don't compare us to any other product.
1: I'm uh, like, oh, your shit exists uh, in the vacuum. Great. Yep. But yeah, exactly. So there's that. Um, and then recently with the Mercurys, um I my sister works in film. She moved from Brazil here as well. She started off in the camera department as a trainee. And over a year, she's gotten to camera operator. And then people recognize the last name from the channel. And it's like, "Do you know this person? And she's like, yeah, that's my brother. So I've got a lot of people saying like, yo, I want to help with the channel. And then I started to leverage all of this industry expertise into video. So it's like, okay, we're going to make a short and it's going to be something. But technically, we're going to take it seriously. The story might be garbage, but technically we're going to like play as if it's real. And mm-hmm. then we're going to see where the gear succeeds, where it breaks. What opinions do we have based on industry experience? And that has enriched the process a lot. Like I learned a ton. The videos become more interesting. I think like having some sort of narrative test is better than walking in the park and just like waving in the wind. Totally. Um, because like no one is going to actually someone who's buying a lens is less likely to use it filming randomly in the park and more likely to use it in a narrative sense. So if they can figure out what are compromises they're gonna have to work with or strengths that the product has when working on set, that's way better. That's way more value. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to do, just like staying connected with people and working on way more uh narrative uh driven projects for the channel not like oh yeah this is going to be my short film i tell everyone this is going on a youtube channel like if you're getting stressed about it it's not worth it yeah yeah very low stakes today
0: yeah exactly there's actually when i was in college because i'm not a writer there was a guy i'm sure it's still out there there's a guy who wrote like i don't know a hundred short scripts you know five ten minutes and they're just all online. And he was like, yeah, these are for students to use, people, whatever, just make sure you credit me. Oh, wow. I'll have to, I'll look that up for you because I bet you could just steal a bunch of those. And
1: yeah, I've been that using... That's what they're for. Yeah. yeah, I've been using Script Revolution, I think. Uh, and there's another web, like catalog of script website where you can go and just, you have to credit the writer and that's it. But uh, a lot of the scripts are just so out there. Where... Yeah. For me, what's been working the best is doing the Rodriguez list, which is like Robert Rodriguez' approach to filmmaking. You make a list of all the cool assets that you have access to. And then you make a story that uses those elements. Yeah. Um, so I'm like, okay, I have a motorcycle. How can I use this? What do I do with it? <laughs> yeah. Before I actually do want
0: to talk about resources, but before we get there, I did want to circle back and, and ask about like Growing a YouTube channel how do how do you how do you do that? Because I'm sure a lot of people are interested in like that process from a nuts and bolts perspective.
1: Yeah, so that has been a stop and go thing. Uh, every time I think about it as a business, I come up with a strategy, and I use that strategy for like synchronizing Instagram and planning schedules and going on Facebook and reaching out to people, and that. Mm -hmm. which is very upsetting because it's also super tiring. Um, Like it's good that it works because if it was tiring and it didn't work, that would suck. But um, a lot of it has been extremely organic for the channel. Uh, I can, basically every year the channel doubles. That has been happening for the last three or four years. Since the beginning of the pandemic, I've been noticing that. and it's great. It's it's super good to have like a, not doubles, 50%. So one and a half times. Uh, uh, that level of, of interest, like it helps that there's a ton of new anamorphic lenses that make people go, what are anamorphic lenses on YouTube? Right. And <laughs> there's basically me there and no one else talking about it. Or like people go in one-off reviews, but in the channel, like, even if I'm not directly comparing one lens to the other, you have the context of like, this is the same person and I know kind of how they think. So I can make my own conclusions from watching these two videos uh, about two products I'm thinking about. Right. Yeah. And reaching out, collaborating with people is immense in terms of growth, both like online, I've done a few things with Mathieu Stern, who does uh, vintage lenses in France. Yeah. Uh, we met when I was in Paris, 2019 as well. It was great. Uh, I met, who else did I collaborate with? Uh, during NAB, I showed up on a bunch of random, random people's videos. Uh, and, but like reaching out and creating ideas to work together on episodes that will go on like two separate channels and connect through the subject works really well and like talking about it, reaching out to people and being engaged, uh, answering comments and trying to promote things without going out of my way. Like I'm not gonna go and be clickbaity because I don't agree with it. Even if it is for my own personal success, I'm like, I don't agree this as a mindset. I don't wanna encourage it. Right. (laughs) So uh, just promoting it and, and, consistently talking about it, recently focusing on like more close range groups, people that I know and would like to work with, uh, or the people that I've been working with, like all these industry people that have suddenly joined to work on the channel, uh, their friends will be like, oh, I was watching that video and you were there? Like, you know that guy? right?" And and they're like, yeah, that's kind of cool. So... I don't have a recipe. I think I fail more than I succeed in terms of growing an audience. And the only reason I'm striving is because I'm doing it on my terms. If if I wanted to have a successful YouTube channel, I would have given up by now. Right. Totally. It's like it's just because I really like doing it. So yeah, my advice is if you're thinking about doing a YouTube channel, make sure that you really like doing the work. Yeah. And that is enough. If that is enough, you just keep going. Eventually, it's going to go somewhere, or you're going to get tired and be like, yeah, I don't want this anymore. But it's, yeah. it's wild to think that when
0: yeah. we were in college, YouTube basically had just started.
1: Yeah. You know, we were yeah. still, I was still putting videos on daily motion and fucking wow. Yeah I was I I had a lot of Vimeo stuff and then I abandoned Vimeo.
0: Yeah, it's real. the death of a giant right there. It's their website is so hard to use. <laughs> Why am I paying you so much money for to not be able like you click you're like I would like to edit this and it's like watch it and I'm like no edit and it goes watch it on a different page.
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is the that is the Vimeo experience. Um and you have to pay it, for everything now. Everything. Uh, everything.
0: It's so, and then also, which I've learned, which I might just nuke the Vimeo altogether, but like, if you stop paying, they just delete or paywall
1: all your stuff and you can't even They unlock your stuff from yourself. Yeah, I have a bunch of stuff on Vimeo, so I'm like, yeah, I'm cool. And they're, they're still paying for the fucking storage for it too. It's not like this is a good move for anyone. Yeah, yeah it's like a kidnapping. It's like, oh, you want you want your stuff back? Well, here's the ransom note. Yeah. And now I
0: guess I guess they're focusing on businesses now, which whatever. But because their player, I do I do like their player better than YouTube. Yes, um, especially the way that swapping videos. Yes, YouTube needs to get it together on the swapping videos. Like one one fucking misspelling of someone's name in a lower third, and I got to go nuke the entire thing. Yeah, so that's how it goes. That's how. Well, I guess if you're like a a big big YouTuber, they kind of halfway give you. I remember there's a. Speaking to the corridor boys, I remember they, uh, there was a video that they chopped a section out of that the captions were still, uh, uh of that removed section, but the section oh. was gone. And because I had the same moment that a bunch of people in the comments had, which is like, I remember you guys talking about this. I, I'm not crazy. I remember specifically
1: this conversation. And then someone was like, turn on the captions. It's still there. Wow. Yeah. I think you can cut pieces out of, youtube but you can't fix them like you either cut the sound or you cut the section or you leave it you just, or you delete the whole thing yeah yeah they're not
0: youtube's funny oh but the point i was getting to was it's it's crazy that it was just a thingy and now there are people who were like the, live the off of it <laughs> live off of it but also like there there are people alive today who are functional adults who never lived in a world without YouTube. Yes, yes. It's such a strange thought to me because to me, it's still just a website. You know, yes, it's it's not like the Internet. Like YouTube is like the Internet to some people. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a thing that it was always there and it just exists. I think this is where like the first two episodes of Black Mirror really caught me because they felt really grounded. They were like, this is stuff that happens today. Like we are this close. For yeah. those things to actually happen in real life. Like the obsession with true crime and like that episode is even meta because they're making a film about something and the, the character's like, No, we should make it about this crime. Like everybody wanna know about this. Yeah. They're like, Well, this this sucked for my family. And then, Well, <laughs> well, it's gonna make you faint. Did it? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. That, that episode's so good. Yeah. And funny, too. That's the weird thing. It's a disturbing vi- episode, and it's very funny. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's very true. And, and I think that's why I liked it, because it's it feels almost not Black Mirror. It's like this could just, like the missing submarine that all the memes are talking about right now. Right. Like those two episodes of Black Mirror feel that are in the same realm as the missing submarine. Yeah. It's like things just went horribly wrong somewhere and that's light yeah i i gotta say to the,
0: anyone making like jokes like it the circumstances surrounding that submarine are absurd so i get why it's like funny but those people are for sure dead and yeah. we can't like i'm just seeing way too many like well making th- too too light or like ah, too I'm light too, yeah you're yeah like yes i mean screw the guy who flaunted safety measures and made the thing and but like they're for sure dead but <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's, that, just, not to bring the yeah. room down but yeah. it's those are yeah hope, hopefully that's the crazy thing about submarines everyone's like i hope it just collapsed instantly like that's the best case scenario that it yeah. just went and they were gone <laughs> yeah delicious cool, oh, wow, everything all the other options suck yeah yeah and people keep like I was just I was at the barber and we were having this conversation. And someone was like, "Well, why don't they just go rescue it?" And I'm like, "Because there's only like two things in the <laughs> world that can go that deep. We don't go that deep. <laughs> That's
1: why yeah, we're not we, made for it.
0: Yeah, it's not like the 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 U.S. Navy doesn't have a submarine that goes that deep. And James Cameron does. You have to get a hold of James Cameron, and he's busy making Avatar. Yeah, too busy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't handle that right now i did want to uh before i let you go here i did want to you'd mentioned the uh robert rodriguez like list and i know he wrote a book right yeah uh rebel without a crew it, yeah then there's also i'm sure you know the dv rebels guide the all the stuff with me a message
1: the other way oh did he uh, yeah i i was at nab and i posted something oh no i left a comment on his Post and he was like, Oh man, you were here. I would have loved to meet. And I was like, Holy shit, Stu Mashwitz knows me. What the fuck? Uh, (laughs) But the three books you mentioned are basically my go to when I have a problem. And uh, the tales from the script behind the lens. No, behind the lens. uh, Oh, Jay Holman. Jay Holman. Yeah. Yeah. He also did uh, uh,
0: Shot in the Dark. No, no, no. Yes. I have all the books over there, but I'm not going to go get them. But Behind Islands no. is a good one. Jay Holman's great. I interviewed him for that. He's a friend of mine now. I would
1: I nice. confidently call him a friend now. Used to be an <laughs> I talked to him at NAB and the biggest compliment I ever got was, yeah, watching your channel doesn't make me want to punch the screen. And I'm like, that's it. That's all yeah. I could ask for. So I, I still want to make something with him. And he was like, yeah, just reach out and figure out what it is. And like, I haven't figured what it is that I want to work with Jay Hoban. Yeah. Have you have you read the whole City Lens Man? Like, have you gone through it or have you only... No. I started and then I'm like, I don't have the time right now and I want to dedicate full attention to this thing. But I think I'll just have to compromise and read it in parts. Just- I... Just, I just I go to have... it whenever I have questions because I
0: can't I same thing I can't read it like a book I, it's a reference manual but it is yeah. so like I always have arguments with people online about fucking speed boosters oh. oh it makes my thing full frame I'm like no it doesn't stop they're like it's the same thing it's yeah. I one comment on one of my videos a guy big long post and at the very end he goes again incredibly easy to test And I was like, buddy. So I emailed Matthew Duglos, (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I was like, can you please respond to this? And he goes, and he just made a response. And I was like, thank you. And I just copy pasted it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That is amazing. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah. Those three books, like the the City Lens Manual is for the future, but the DV Rebels Guide and Rebel Without a Crew were foundational books for my filmmaking career. Uh, The DV Rebels Guide is so genius like Stu Meshwitz is like here's production value for you with just a tiny bit of post right just like the, the 10 minutes of After Effects and that's what got me into After Effects I was like yeah I could do hey, more yeah him so, and Andrew Kramer yes oh god bless his heart <laughs> yeah you
0: know what's funny is I remember for when I was planning a much bigger film for my thesis for college I called Stu I don't know how I got his phone number I think it was like in the DV. I don't know how I got his phone number, but I called him and I'm, you know, whatever, 20 years old. And I was like, hey, I'm doing a student film at Arizona State. I was hoping you could be the DP. And he just laughed and he goes, uh, I'm good right now, but thanks. <laughs> it's like, OK, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Man, serious guts to that. I'm
1: Amazing uh, I was- drive
0: uh amazingly stupid at the time i uh, that that era of my life was very like anything's possible you just call people whatever (laughs) very confident yeah but uh i did want to ask are there any other books that you found because i've got a nice little library and uh i'm always trying to add things to it but uh any other
1: books that you've run into that you think are good resources for the filmmaker actually there is a book called vision and i can't remember the name of the author. Hold up, let me pull this up. Or it's not that I can't remember, it's I can't pronounce. Well, fair enough. Uh, Vision, color and composition by Hans P. Baca. And he worked at Disney uh, for countless years in their 2D animation department. Yeah. And he talks about composition like nothing I've ever seen before. Uh, he talks about it in animation terms, but everything he says you can apply to lighting and blocking every single thing. And a friend gave me this book, and it's been my mission to give it to other people. So like whenever someone mentions something that's along the lines and like, you should check out this book. Here's a copy. Um, oh yeah, yeah, it's super, super good. I'll have to I don't think I have it. No, yeah. check no. it out. The one that
0: uh, I'll recommend to you because it was recommended to me by Eric Messerschmidt um,
1: well, is Hitchcock by Kerfow. Oh, yes. I've read, some, I've read several segments of this book. Oh, okay, cool. During film school. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, no, that one, I,
0: I interviewed him like six months ago and uh six seven months ago and i was like oh, or i had just bought it maybe but i had heard like he recommended it somewhere else or something like that but i was like, gonna,
1: i'll send you a it, with the thing it's very cool because hitchcock and Truffaut have very different approaches to the films they make are incredibly different but their conversation is extremely eloquent and like interconnected yeah uh, it's like they really know the craft of filmmaking uh disconnected from the films that they make and that is truly fascinating yeah yeah no it's it's
0: like you were saying like the getting into film history only realizing that you needed the film
1: history knowledge when it was too late yes yeah. <laughs> it's so important it is so important that is the one thing i missed the most in the last two times i went to film school uh, <laughs> it was just like no history and i'm like no history how am I supposed to move forward? I got to learn from someone's mistakes.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's, it's the frustrating thing when people go like, oh, you can, you know, don't go to film school. You can learn everything online. And it's like, you can, but you won't have anyone to tell you what to look for. And you certainly won't go searching for a film history. You'll just yeah. land on, you know, today's review of the fucking GH5.
1: Yes. Yeah. You can learn. Technical a lot without going to film school, like I even recommend learning technical without going to film school. volunteer on a set, just go one day and like watch stuff, go in every department and see what happens. but for me, the value of film school is film history and the connections that you make, yeah, like, I don't know, and the safe space minutes. to fail, yes, uh which a lot of film schools don't promote, which I find weird like. This is where you should fail. You should encourage your students to like try really weird stuff and don't punish them for it Yeah. because what I, what I've witnessed is like, oh, we tried this and it didn't work out. So our film sucks. And then that reflects in a bad grade. And I'm like, that does not sound right. Like you tried hard, you think failed, not because of you, but because it was an experiment. So you learned a lot that should reflect in a good grade. Like yeah. the way of evaluating, uh, film students has to be different. Yeah.
0: I mean, I haven't, uh, when I went to ASU at the film school, I think we had like two DVXs and then eventually we got a 5D that everyone had to fight over. Um, yeah, it was, it was very minimal, you know, uh, and now they have like a fucking full on studio. With like oh. stages and greens sc- like it's wild what they've got there because they got a ton of money and it's now called the sydney portier F- school of film and arts or something like that oh, so I, I i want to go back and because me uh, the film school started in 06 i got there in 08 uh-huh. and so I oh, no. i ran into at nab i ran into my old editing professor who now runs the whole thing and he was like, we need to have you guys come back and tell all these stupid kids what they're uh, you know, taking for granted. And I was like, I would love to do that. <laughs> yes, it's always good to tell people just like your life is so easy and you don't know it. Right. That's yeah, the old man screaming at clouds has definitely become part of my uh, aesthetic I've noticed. Yeah. But, uh, but, it, but to your point, it would be interesting to go back and see how, because I was graded the same way. Like they would give you a task and if you didn't, if you failed that task, bad grit.
1: And if you're trying to do different, you're like, oh, yeah, I just don't want to. If you do different and succeed, excellent, amazing, everybody loves you. If you do different and you fail, that was a waste of time from the beginning. And I told you so. Like, bro, that's not how it works. (laughs) Yeah. I remember there was one kid
0: who uh, tried different. And I don't know what planet he landed on, but it was out there. And the only reason we could tell that he, like, phoned this in. Is not because it was very like conceptual you know it was just like kind of a string of shots but like we knew he phoned it in because the credits sequence was outside the bounds of the screen (laughs) like it went it was really long like each it was just very long and it went Uh up in like one bar and we were like okay guy (laughs) like you tried you tried to
1: get us here but you phoned this one in Oh uh, yeah. And it yeah, in Brazil we have like the European tradition of film. So it's like slower, more drama, experimental stuff. And I was very not on board with that. I was like, I want action. I want to do like gunfights and car chases. That's what I'm here for. And so there was this one other guy who would he started a YouTube channel too and then he killed it, but it was greatly successful in Brazil. It was the zombie kill show. And every week he would have a little, like one minute episode of this post-apocalyptic world where someone ran into zombies and they had like, did something epic about it. And it was like lots of visual effects, lots of action. I was like, this is dope. This is where I want to go. And how mm-hmm. I, this is how I ended up in Canada. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the,
0: man, I do really miss the like, kind of wide-eyed excitement of getting like, dialed in in After Effects. So there's another company DV, DV, I think was one of them. Uh, I think they became a bigger editing company now. I can't remember. what. I think Sony ended up buying them at the end of the day. But um, yeah, all the, that was all so much fun to just, because that was, I, I think it sounds like you were kind of the same thing where like The Matrix came out and like all these visual spectacle films were like, I want to do yeah. that. Like, exactly. That's me with that voice. I want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I go buy a trench coat, a bunch of airsoft guns. Yeah. And just not, um, I have so much tape of just me and my friends in fucking trench coats with airsoft guns in locations that make no sense. Oh, yeah. Vineyards, you know. <laughs> places. The way you have available. Yeah, bank, parking lot. It's just places people wouldn't see us, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know we're, we've gone over time, so I, I will let you go. But I end, I end the podcast asking everyone the same question. Which All is, right. uh, you know, a lot of times on podcasts, people go, oh, what's the best piece of advice you ever got? And the answer is always like, stick with it.
1: Uh, So I want to know, what's the worst piece of advice you ever got? The worst piece of advice I ever got. Man, I've gotten so many. So much so <laughs> stuff. Um, the worst piece of advice I ever got. One of them, at least. Yeah. One of them, I think one of them was almost the entirety of the last time I went to film school, which was the mindset of be a director, like a director has to have answers. You must know all the answers about your film and you command the crew. And like that threw me into an identity crisis because I was like, I don't want to do that, but I still want to make films. I just don't believe in any of this. So it was such bad advice that pushed me into meeting people for good advice, where I like, for my graduation project, I was like, I don't wanna do that, what do I do? Uh, and one of the professors was like, you open open the process, just like, instead of having it vertical, just horizontalize the whole thing. Just give everybody same amount of power and say when you don't have solutions. Yeah. So, yeah, that turned out to be the best piece of advice I ever got. So they're they're interconnected. There you go. Let me see if, if I have one that's really funny though. Um, a lot of, I don't know. I've I've given lots of bad advice. Does that count? I've given sure. advice of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You should glue the inside this part inside of a lens with super glue. Like that's something I said. It's on. It's one of the videos, and <laughs> it's still up. To, yeah years later it was like don't do that that was a terrible idea for multiple reasons like the super glue emits vapors and it sticks to grease so if you have greasy fingerprints on the lens because you were just touching the helicoid, the super glue will crystallize there and you're done isn't that how they do it i remember there's like a movie where they
0: they or maybe it was csi or something where they oh. they're dusting for fingerprints and they use super glue oh wow i hadn't even that's what because i didn't know what the fuck was going. i was like oh okay cool but yeah. they like aerosolize superglue. glue it's
1: interesting i didn't know that was an actual thing it's an actual thing like yeah whenever i use superglue, like you always have that white fog beyond the area of the superglue, and it's just the vapor attaching to grease wow all right yeah that's not good advice yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. don't use don't use, super glue. Don't, use super glue. don't disassemble lenses on set
0: things oh, done. Oof. <laughs> Lenses are so, like, they're built, like, you know, those rangers, they're built so strong and then if, like, one thing gets loose, it's all game over. Yes. How'd you put a, how'd you put a beach worth of sand in this? You're like, uh, I put it on the ground for a second. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I ripped through a helicoid of a very special contacts 28 mil once because I was like, I gotta put uh, a lens gear on it. So I 3D printed. It was a little, a little too tight. And I was like, I'm just going to warm it up and push it. But in pushing it, I did not focus the lens to infinity and that put a ton of stress on the helicoid. So every time I would focus in either direction, it would eat more into it to the point where the lens became a brick. And I had this bricked lens for like three years. It's, I think it's now a $2,000 lens. Oh, God. So, yeah. That is the one thing that I have to say uh, you and the
0: rest of the like lens YouTubers are really fucking up for everyone is eBay prices. Whenever you
1: come out with a video, eBay prices just get bonkers, yes, uh, I think that's kind of why I stopped. Like people would come to ask for advice, like, how much should I sell this for? And I'm like, I don't tell people what to sell their lenses for. you You label it as you want. I don't want to influence the market more than I already do. And now that we have so many new anamorphics, like, the prices are coming down, especially yeah. for adapters. Uh, but all sphericals are gone. It's it's YouTubers and rehousing companies because they're like like Zero Optic will be like, Oh yeah, we should rehouse these next. And then they'll go and buy everything. Yeah. And then by the time they announce it's already scarce. So it's instantaneous that the price jumps, because it's like, oh, there's little but it's cheap. And then there's less, but I can charge more. And then it's like <laughs> gone. Yeah. I actually uh ooh
0: microphone. Uh I interviewed Alex for the pod. I had a whole lens. I think I told you so I had a whole lens, man. Yeah. So it was like Alex Nelson, Dan Keynes, um uh dude from uh Tokina, Ryan Avery and Jay Holben were the four interviews. But I really want Zero Optic. It ugh, once I get, you know, a fucking loan, uh, <laughs> I want I want uh Alex to rehouse my nightcores. Yeah. Because their nightcore rehousings are good. They're so good. Yeah. But that is, I think they're like it's like fourteen grand or something. Yeah. Like total, I think it'll be like fourteen, fifteen grand for the for the three full set. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Because that's the thing too is like I have a, I have like a a whole set of nightboards, but I only ever use the basically the thirty five and the fifty. I have yeah, twenty four and a twenty eight, and I barely
1: touch them. Yeah, I have That's because I'm on a full frame. So it's like, you know, I have a full set of contacts like 15, 21, 28, 35, 50, 60, 85, 135 and 180. Um, and I'm like, I should rehouse this. And then I look at the price and I'm like, I should sell this. Yeah, I barely use them, but it was such a hassle to collect. And like there is emotional investment in there, which is a thing that happens when you like you've had lenses for years. Like I'm invested in this. I don't use it and I don't collect it. Potentially rent them out. I tried, but it's, I just don't want to deal with it anymore. I think I just Would, want the space now. Well, yeah, that's what, so if you have a, you're in
0: Vancouver, uh, find a rental house close to you and ask if you can just park the set there. And then they'll give you like 50, well, I'm just telling you what the local house does for me, but they'll give you roughly 50% of whatever the rental is and then you just leave it in their gear cage good to know i might i have some people i could approach with this that i'm gonna try do that because i mean obviously people would want a rehoused one but i'm sure there's plenty of people would hear that they're the photo lenses and they're like wow fuck it like i want that for my music video or short film or yeah because they look special like they the glass is fucking amazing so yeah um well it was fucking great talking to you, man. I'd uh, love to have you back on at some point and just keep the chat going, but uh, definitely
1: stay in touch. And uh, yeah, thanks Thanks for doing the show. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. I was very insecure at first, but I had a great time. Thank you. Oh, awesome. That, that's best best compliment I could have. And I definitely have to go back for all those interviews that you mentioned just now. I'm like, I could hear those people talk for hours. So I'm going oh, to go back and check them out. And you will. Um, all right, cool. Well, let, let me know uh, what you think. All right. Will do. Take care,
0: brother. You too. Bye-bye. Frame and Reference is an Owlbot production. It's produced and edited by me, Kenny McMillan, and distributed by Pro Video Coalition. As this is an independently funded podcast, we rely on support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to help, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash frame and ref pod. We really appreciate your support. And as always, thanks for listening.